Um, it really is great to be uh, worshiping with all of you today. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Pat Malloy. I'm the lead pastor here, and I, I would love just the opportunity to connect with you um, after service today. I'll be outside um, under the pergola. Make sure you come on up, say hi, introduce yourself. Um, it would just be a, an honor just to get to know you a little bit uh, better. And I want to also just uh, say just a, a thank you to Lowell Kosak that last week he uh, preached on Sunday morning, did an amazing job last week. And if so, if you weren't here last Sunday or you've missed any of um, our messages in this First John series, I'd encourage you to go onto our app. You can go on our website, onto our Facebook page or our YouTube page. And you can follow up, you can, you can uh, watch any of our, our previous messages and sermons and get yourselves caught up with, with where we're at. And, and just on a side note along with that, I, I mentioned our app, that our app really is a, a great resource for you as well. We have a lot of different things that you can utilize on the app. We have our, our church calendar, our weekly reading plan, our podcast, you can submit prayer requests on the app. You, you can even follow along in the message as well. You, all the, the points and the sermon passages, or the, excuse me, the, the verses are, are in there. You can take your own notes and email it to yourself as well. And just to, it's, it's a way for you just to be able to meditate and review what we've talked about throughout the week as well. And so I, I'd encourage you, go um, onto your app store, look up Livingstone's Church South Bend, and you'll be able to find us that way. But as I stated a minute ago, we're in a series that we're going through in the first or excuse me, in the New Testament book of 1 John. And, and it's a letter that was written by the last surviving member of Jesus' inner circle. And he was an old man at this time, and he was seeking to encourage and to help some of just these, these new churches that had been planted just recently that were just kind of trying to hold on. And, and he, was, he was writing to them as, as a father of just trying to say, hey, hang in there. Hey, it's going to be okay. Remember what you learned. Remember what, what you were taught. Remember to stay faithful to God. And, and, and a number of years back, I, was, I watched the Ken Burns documentary, The Civil War. Has anybody ever watched that one? It, it's really good. I, it's, it's really a good series. And, and there's a clip I want to play for you from the series. And in the clip, it, a letter is going to be read that was penned by a man named Sullivan Ballou. He was a, a major in uh, the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry Regiment. And I want, I want to just play the, the recitation of this letter to you, and then we're going to talk about it. If you can go ahead and cue that up. A week before the Battle of Bull Run, Sullivan Ballou, a major in the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers, wrote home to his wife in Smithfield. July the 14th, 1861, Washington, D.C. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. And lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. 
It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I have enjoyed with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I've enjoyed them for so long. And how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. When God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and see our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been. But oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always. And when the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air, your throbbing temple. It shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run. You hear those words and it's, and it's moving. You know, it, it, it really is moving, a man who believed so much in the Union cause, and you, you can hear it in his writing, you can hear it in this letter to his wife, and, and like the, the narrator said, he was killed a week later in the first battle of Bull Run. And, and what I find so moving about this, this letter of Sullivan Ballou to, to his wife, the love of his life, is he wanted to impart some final words some final words of encouragement about, all right, why, why am I doing this? What, why, why have I left you and left our kids and gone and willing to put my life on the line for this? In some ways, I, I, that's the same heart or a similar heart behind John's letter that he's writing here as well, that he recognizes that his time on this earth is drawing short. And he's writing to the churches uh, of Jesus Christ, the thing that he has devoted his life to, over the previous decades, the thing that he just, he loves, and, and he's endured hardship and exile, the murder of friends, the loss of loved ones. He's witnessed persecution. Like, he, he's been an eyewitness to so many things. In some ways, he's telling the churches, hey, stay faithful. Stay the course. The cause is worth it. Even though it's hard, the cause is worth it. And John's heart for the churches that he's writing to is once again demonstrated in, in the next few verses that we're going to be talking about today. And so if you're following along, if you have your Bible or on the app, or you can look on the screen, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, that's where we're going to pick up. And John, he says, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven 
through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I'm writing to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. And, and now, at, at first glance, these three verses seem a little bit out of place because there's not a, a super strong connection to what immediately came before this, and there's really not a strong connection to immediately comes afterward. Like, if, if, if you think about it, this is like, as I was reading this, I would think, all right, John, this is how you ought to have started your letter. You know, like when we write a letter, more often we write an email these days, like we, we at the beginning, we'll just offer a salutation of who it is that we are, that we are writing to. But here, John kind of tucks it about a third of the way through his letter, and you're saying, all right, like, why, why in the world would you do that, John? And I think in some ways it was done purposefully as well, because if you remember, John is writing as a father figure. He's writing as a father figure who, to, to Believers who are sometimes three and four generations removed from Jesus. Like his spiritual sons and daughters, his spiritual grandsons and granddaughters. And in so doing, I think he's, he's writing as a, as a father ought. Now my kids, three of them are sitting on the front row here. Like they've heard me say this many times before, that disciplining your kids is one of the worst things about being a parent. Nobody likes to do it. If you do, you got a problem. But no, nobody likes to, to discipline your kids. And, and in some ways, you can read what has come before this passage as a bit of discipline that, that, that John is offering to these churches, giving them in some ways a, a light spiritual spanking, where he just got done saying a few verses before of saying that if you claim to know God, but you don't do what he commands, well, then you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. He's saying, all right, if you claim to be living in the light, but you hate someone else, you're, you're a liar, you're actually living still in darkness. Like that can be some tough medicine to take. Like no doubt in my own life, there are times I have not obeyed God's commands. Hate's a strong word, but there's definitely time that there's been people I've not loved and not loved well. And so John is saying a couple, a couple of tough things here. But I believe like a good father, after administering some discipline, he seeks to reassure his children of who they are and what he sees in them. And I can't say, like, as a dad, I do this perfectly every time because I sure don't. But when I have to discipline my kids afterward, I try to take them aside and look them in the eye and, and tell them that I love them, reminding them of who they are. Telling my son, Josiah, I love you. And what I'm seeing in you right now, that's not you. You're a boy of integrity, of self-control, of love, and both I and God love you. And, and I think that's somewhat what John is doing in these verses here. He's saying, you're still God's children because your sins have been forgiven. He says, you know Christ. You've won the battle over the evil one. You know the Father. You know Jesus Christ. You're strong. God's word lives in your heart. And somebody's just saying, don't be discouraged by what I'm saying, but I know who you are. Let me remind you of who you are. Let me remind you of what it is that I see in you. And not only is he reminding them of who they are and whose they are, but if you notice, John is actually addressing some very specific groups when he's writing this. 
And so I, we're going to read through those three verses again, and I, I, I even highlighted on the screen of who it is that John is specifically communicating to. He says, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your heart and you have won the battle with the evil one. And as he's writing, like John is including the entire church family in this, in this correspondence, in this letter here. And in just reflecting the amazing diversity within the family of God. Like where, where John writes God's children, it's translated from the Greek word technion, which is the idea of, of, of a small newborn child. Like he's addressing those who are brand new in the faith, those that just heard about Jesus. He's saying, all right, you are God's children because your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has made you a child of God. You are a part of God's family. Even though you're just an infant, you are part of God's family. He's writing to those, he says, who are mature in the faith, those who have been around the block, the spiritual fathers and mothers of the church, those who've walked with God a long time that have a maturity in their faith. He says that he's writing to those who are young in the faith. And this is my kind of definition of that. I would, I would say like, what he would call spiritual adolescence. Like, just like our own teenagers. They're, they're kind of discovering who they are. They're discovering, all right, how, they're, they're growing and maturing and understanding, all right, how do I relate to the, to the world? How, how do I take this thing, this faith that I have, and, and now apply it and, and work it out in, in my life? And John is addressing this to all of them, every member of God's family. And if you, if you read through this, and we talked about this before, that there's a common theme in, in 1 John, where one of the things that John is trying to do is he's trying to reassure and he's trying to communicate to these believers in these churches that they are indeed saved, that they are indeed a part of God's family. That a couple weeks ago I shared with you 1 John chapter 5, 13, and he closes his letter by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying, all right, I, I, want, I want to assure you, I want you to know, hey, you know what? You are a part of the family of God. And going back to the three verses we're talking about right now, I find it interesting that John makes these distinctions. Those who are God's children, those spiritual infants, those who are mature in the faith, and those who are young in the faith, those spiritual adolescents in a way. And I want to remind you, or just kind of maybe point out too, not to, well, what, what not to read into what John is saying, because he's not saying that there are spiritual levels by which we can attain. You know, that after we graduate from spiritual grammar school, well then, you know, then you become young in the faith, and after you've graduated from spiritual high school or spiritual college, well now, now you are mature in the faith. It, it doesn't work like that at all. But rather, John is just making an honest observation about what naturally occurs, because our spiritual walk should not ever be just a static thing. Like the expectation that, that John has, that Paul has, that, that Peter has, is that we are grow, continually growing in our faith. Peter writes in, in 2 Peter 3.18, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Like he's saying, don't just stay where you are, but admonish it. All right, grow in your walk. Grow in your knowledge. Grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. The writer of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. He says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. But let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. Like he's saying, all right, like we shouldn't be talking about the same things. You shouldn't be wrestling with the same things now that you did early on. Like we ought to be growing. We ought to be maturing in our faith. Like our, our salvation, it takes place in an instant, in a moment. We, we place our faith in Christ and, and it's an instantaneous transaction. We've been made a new creation. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But our, our sanctification, which is a, a $10 word for our, our, our process of becoming more like Jesus, will take us the rest of our lives. And so this idea that we put our faith in Jesus and then we don't grow and we don't mature, that we don't begin looking and living more like him, like this would be a foreign idea, a foreign concept to the biblical writers. And, and in the same way that a baby grows and matures to become a child, who grows and matures to become a teenager, who grows and matures to become an adult, like we also ought to be growing in, in Christ-likeness as well. But just like our own kids, they grow and develop and mature at different rates. Growth, growth spurts hit at different times. There's no set time that a, that a teenage boy's voice starts to crack and deepen where he starts to shave. There, there's no set time where, where a, a girl gets her first period. You know, like so, some, some are mature and ready to, to date at 14. Some shouldn't be dating until they're in their 30s. Like some of us are balding a lot sooner than others. Like, and the same is true with spiritual formation and development as well, is that it takes time. Everybody matures and grows at different rates, and that's okay. That's not a bad thing. In fact, this actually ties into something that Lowell talked about last week, that because of that fact, because we all do mature, and because we all do grow at different rates, because we are all at different spots in our walk and our relationship with God, because, we, we're, because we're going to look different and act different, let us love one another with no buts, Regardless of where you are, regardless of, of what I might perceive as your level of maturity, as spiritual maturity, and your walk with God. No, no, we love people regardless of where they are. Like Paul argues in Romans 14 that we ought to offer grace and love and charity and understanding to those that are in a different place in their walk with God. That that's, that's our responsibility as, as members of, of this family. Being okay that people are going to be at different walks, that, that God is, is doing things in, in your life that is different than what he's doing in my life, and we might be growing and maturing in different places. Maybe God is convicting me about something that he's not convicted you about, and that's okay. There's a quote that's been attributed by some to Augustine, and, and it kind of sums up how we relate to diversity within the church family. And you've likely heard this or some version of this before. 
But this quote that's attributed to Augustine, Augustine is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. And, and what, what he means by that is like in, in the essentials, in the things that, you know, like Jesus is the Son of God. Like that is an essential. We, we, we don't argue over that. That's an essential. He lived a sinless life. He was raised from the dead. That our faith in him and, and the work that he did on the cross is what brings us to salvation, not by our own works, not by anything that we do. Like those are essentials. It's in, our, in those things, no, we are unified. We are united together. In non-essentials, because there's a whole bunch of non-essentials out there. Like, what, was the earth made in six literal days? Or was it made over a longer period of time? That is a non-essential. Women serving as pastors or as elders, like, that's a non-essential. Drinking, your opinions on drinking, it's a non-essential. In those things, we offer liberty because different people are going to arrive at different conclusions and are at different places in their walk with God. And so because of that, we're going to offer liberty. We're, we're, we're going to be gracious. But in all things, charity. In all things, charity. Like at the end of the day, we're not going to divide ourselves, but we're going to seek and we're going to pursue unity. Like there, there are things, again, like the, that maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you about that he's not convicting me about. But in the end, we're going to offer freedom in that. We're going, to, we're going to be united in that. We're not going to divide over those things. And we're not going to hold people to unrealistic standards. Somebody who just came to faith in Christ, we're not going to be expecting them to have all this knowledge and understanding. Like, they're still going to be a mess. Shoot, I've been a believer for 24 years. I'm still a mess. But we grow and we mature at different Rates. And, and the thing about it is, and, and it's so beautiful, like God has assembled an amazing cross-section of humanity. Spiritual infants, those who are young in the faith, those who are mature in the faith, and we all need one another. It's one of the beautiful things about the family of God is that we all need one another. And, and regardless of where we are in our journey, regardless of how long we've been walking with God, that we seek love and grace and unity with one another. But then over the next few verses, John, it, it seems to be switching gears a little bit again. In verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires will pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And again, at first glance, this, this passage might seem a little bit confusing, maybe even somewhat contradictory, where he said, he, like, he emphatically says, all right, don't love the world or anything in the world. You say, all right, John 3, 16 says, so for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And aren't we supposed to love the things that God loves? All right, well, if God so loved the world, then why is John telling us not to love the world? And if we look at the, the word that's translated world, it's the Greek word cosmos. And, and cosmos has up to eight different meanings to it. And, and so in John 3, 16, when the, the word world is used, it, it's meaning humanity. 
people, you and I, for God so loved humanity, for God so loved us that he gave his one and only son. But in 1 John, it's referring to the worldly system, the worldly order of things. Don't love the worldly systems. Don't love the worldly order of things. It's the same reference or the same uh, word that Paul uses in Romans 12 too, where he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Like essentially saying, all right, there's God's system, there's God's order of things, and then there's the worldly system and the worldly order of things. And what Paul is saying and what John is saying and and even what James says in James 4.4, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And, and, and what they're saying is, all right, there, there, there's these two different systems. There, there's the systems of God's kingdom and the systems of this worldly kingdom. I, I was thinking of a, a, a little bit like this. Angel and I had our anniversary last week. We've been married for 21 years. And, and, it, and if I came home to her one day and I said, honey, sweetie, you, you know how much I love you, Right? And I might get a side-eye glance, be like, yeah. And you know I'm 100% committed to you, right? And she's starting to get a little more suspicious in this moment. And say, and you know you can trust me no matter what. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, all right, what in the world is going on? And, and if I said to her, all right, well... I want to let you know that I'm going to spend the weekend with my old ex-girlfriend that I was with before we got married. <laughs> like it wouldn't fly. And, and then in some ways that's what John is talking about. He's talking about us having divided loyalties. Divided loyalties. Like we can't be devoted to the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God at the same time. Because John argues that the things of this world are just temporary. They're not going to last. The kingdoms and the civilizations of this world, the norms and the standards of, the, of this world, the things of this world that we put our faith and our hope and our trust in are all going to pass away someday. They're all going to disappear. Empires and governments and kingdoms, civilizations have come and gone. The economy, money, things that we think are going to bring us security and and control, like they ebb and flow, they have their ups and downs. He's saying, all right, if, if we put our hope in those things, we're bound for a crash because they will not last. Now, what John is not saying, he's not saying, all right, that we, that we shouldn't love the world, the things that he's created, the people that are in it. We absolutely should. We, we should take pleasure in him and his creation and those around us. But the things of this world, the things that, that this world puts its hope in, the systems and the worldly order of things, John's saying, don't choose those things. Don't divide your loyalty. Let's not say that our faith and our hope is in God, but then actually place our faith and our hope in the things of this world. Those things that are going to fade and falter and let us down and ultimately leave us empty. 
And then John, he, he goes on to give three examples of, of kind of what he's talking about. In verse 16, he says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they come not from the Father, but from the world. And, and so let's take a look at those, those three for just a moment. The, the lust of the flesh, like things that, that seek to satisfy the cravings of our flesh. Food, sex, gossip, revenge, physical violence. Like, I mean, we could go on and on about that. And what John is talking about is, is satisfying our physical needs, which are God-given. They're not bad in and of themselves. They're normal. They're good. But doing so in, in a sinful way, doing things in a wrong way, satisfying those normal things that God has wired us and, and built us with, but doing it in a, in a wrong manner. Like hunger is a natural human urge, and, and we can enjoy and we can satisfy that urge with, with having an amazing meal and, and delicious food and, and sitting around a table with, with people that we love and enjoy. Like, that's a beautiful thing. But we can also run to food as a way of coping, of medicating ourselves when, when we feel stressed, when we feel anxious, when we feel fearful. Our sex drive, like it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, beautiful gift from God. And we ought to meet and satisfy that, that need with our spouse. It's something that we ought to do. But we can easily pursue the pleasures of sex in a, in a, in a self-focused, objectifying way outside of God's design. We have a need for connection with others, to feel, to feel validated, to feel heard. But that can quickly morph into, into gossip, into division, into strife. Like, like we, have, we have an innate desire. It's, it's something that God has, has placed inside every single one of us, a desire for justice, for things to be made right. But we must not fulfill that desire through seeking revenge and retribution. Do, do you see what I'm like? They, like these are these urges and these needs and these things that, that God has placed in us. They aren't bad in of themselves. And what John is warning, what he's saying is, all right, don't don't go about the world's way of, of fulfilling those needs of of fulfilling those uh, the, those desires of the flesh. Because it will lead to destruction. It's going to fade. It's going to fail. Let us down. Leave us empty. John talks about the, the lust of the eyes. Things like envy, greed, desire, materialism. Like, like the things that we see and we get dissatisfied when we look at our own life, when we feel like we're lacking. When we end up looking for things to satisfy us rather than God. When we look for the, the world to meet our needs rather than trusting in God's provision. Or the pride of life. Like inflating ourselves and our own sense of, of importance. When, when we try to, to posture and make ourselves look better than we actually are, seeking to impress other people. Vanity, vainglory, like the, the things that draw attention to ourselves rather than drawing attention to Christ within us. John says, all right, these things, 
They come from the world. Don't, don't, don't go about the world's way of satisfying those things. Because it will let you down. It will leave all of us empty. And he goes on to say in verse 17, the world and its desires, they pass away. Those things are going to pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Lives forever. Again, he, he's reiterating that all the things of this world is not going to last. It's not going to last. The, the things that we put our hope in, the things that we pursue after to meet our needs and, and the cravings that we have within us, the systems, the things that we feel like are going to provide safety and security and control for us, like none of those things, if we pursue them the world's way, are going to last. It's not actually going to produce the results that we think it's going to produce. Maybe temporarily, maybe for a moment. But then it fades, and then we have to go look for another fix. We have to look for another, another lifeline, another, another thing to try to give us control, to make us feel good, to make us feel better. But John says, hey, we're a part of an everlasting kingdom, one that will not fade, one that will not pass away. Like we serve and we love a God who is eternal, that, that while, while nations and kingdoms and kings and presidents, while careers and finances, while all those things are going to fade away, God's the only one. He's the only thing that will truly last. And that's what we ought to be building our life on. That's what we ought to be building our life on. And next week, John, he's actually going to be sharing more with us about staying connected and abiding with, with Christ. And I'm looking forward to, to sharing that with you. And so the, the question I really kind of, I want to end with this morning and really have us just kind of like check ourselves to have a, a, us consider is what is it that I'm truly trusting in? What, what am I truly trusting in? Am I, am I trusting in, in the, the, the systems and, and the methods and the things of this world? Am I truly trusting in the systems and the methods and the things of God? Like am I trusting in my own wisdom and thoughts and intellect? Or am I trusting my, my Heavenly Father for guidance and direction? Am I, am I trusting in my own, my own finances and in my own wealth? Or am I trusting God to be my provider, to meet my needs? Am I trusting in, in political parties and political systems and candidates and, and legislation? Or am I trusting in God who is true and right and just? That the answer isn't getting the right laws or the right Supreme Court justices, but is Christ in me bringing about the change rather than trying to, to legislate change? Like, like where, where is my faith and my hope and my trust really being placed? Am I putting my faith in people who are going to let me down, who are also going to pass away, fade away? Or am I truly trusting in what God has to say? Is he my anchor and my rock? Or am I relying on somebody else to be that rock? Am I seeking to meet my God-given needs and desires in ways that, that seem right to me, that maybe feel good in the moment, rather than trusting in God's plan, in God's way, in God's design of meeting those needs that are far better than my own?
Am I having divided loyalties? Like that, that's, that's the question. When I, when I was reading this, that was the question that just kept coming back over and over to me. Where, where is my trust really? Not, not just the things that I say, not, not what I wish was true. But where's my trust really? Because I want my faith and my hope and my trust to be in God and in Him alone. That's what John is encouraging us to do. So I'm going to ask everybody just to, to bow your heads. I'm going to pray right now for us. Father, we, we love you so very much. God, thank you that you are kind and gracious, Lord, in, in the same way that, that John sometimes issues some challenging things, but then he reminds us of who, he reminds us of who we are. He reminds us of, of what it is that, that he sees in us and what he calls us to, Lord, that you do that same thing, that you don't sit here and, and beat us over the head and, and accuse at all. But, Lord, that you remind us of who we are. You remind us of, of what it is that we're striving to be. And Father, I, I, I pray that you would just give us divine insight. God, open our eyes. Give us the, the wisdom to see, the, the courage to look inside of ourselves and say, Lord, where is my trust really being placed? Am I trusting in, in the systems and the things of this world? Am I trusting God in your systems and your ways? Am I seeking to, to meet those, those God-given desires and needs in, in ways that are honoring to you? Or am I doing it in a way that seems right in the moment, that feels good in the moment, but that I know will leave me empty? And God, I, I just pray that you open ourselves up, that you would help us just open our hearts to you. And if we've been having divided loyalties, Lord, that we, that we would uh, turn away from those things, that we would choose to let go of those things that we have been putting our hope and our trust in and reach out to you, Lord, because you're always reaching back out to us. God, we love you. And we want you to have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.